and Steve, turn in your Bibles, please, to the book of Judges. Book of Judges. <clears throat> We've been looking at the story of Samson, and we said that Samson is one of the strangest stories in the entire Bible. When you look at the account of Samson himself, here was a man who seemed to have all of the privileges, all of the advantages that anyone really could have, and probably should have set him up, as we said before, to be one of the greatest judges of all time. And that's the, uh, this is the story of the life of a man who is so richly anointed with the potential for blessing, so richly anointed uh, and set up for victory, and yet his life is not marked with lots of spiritual victory, is it? It's marked with just the opposite, a lot of spiritual defeat and a lot of disgrace, as a matter of fact. He did less for God's people than any other judge which is saying a lot because you have a lot of judges in the book of Judges. One commentator put it this way. On the one hand, he's born and buried as a hero, but on the other hand, he's a bandit, a trickster, and one who frivolously fritters away his extraordinary calling and gifts. That's exactly what happens as we walk through the story. He was to be a leader in Israel. He was to be God's instrument to deliver his people. But unfortunately, his walk with God is erratic at best, as we'll see. And it's marked with very infrequent contact with God. How could it be that someone with all the advantages given to them by God, who is set up even before they're born, fails so miserably? The book of Judges shows us that although no other judge has more potential for being used by the Lord uh, than Samson. His life is really a failure before the Lord. So let's look again to see tonight where Samson begins to stumble in his walk. So we're in uh, Judges chapter 14. Remember that we saw previously that in Samson's day, who was the main oppressor? The Philistines are the main oppressor. And our text tells us that the Philistines oppressed the Israelites for how long? 40 years, right? Longer than any other nation. However, unlike every other oppression, remember when we had that whole cycle of sin that we had memorized, right? Uh, there's the one thing that's missing in the cycle of sin, right? And what is that? No supplication, right? There's no, no crying out to the Lord at all. Now, why is that? Or how can that be that somebody who's oppressed longer than any other uh, I mean, Israel is oppressed by this nation longer than any other nation, and yet there's not a single cry out to God for help in that time. Well, why not? Well, you will recall that the Philistines didn't come in and try and take over their fields, remember, like some of the other ones had, or come in and, and pillage the villages, right, or steal all their stuff, or plunder and, uh, and take all of their women. Instead, they did something very different. What did they do? They... They, they assimilated in, okay? They said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go in and marry all, their, all of their daughters, right? And we're going to get their daughters to marry our sons, and then we're going to bring them all together, and then when we do, we will basically be in total control, right? Because uh, they will be intermarried at that point. Secondly, the Philistines were great metal workers, and so they had iron and steel, and so they had weapons of warfare, which the Israelites did not have. Their weapons were wood, 
and so they didn't do as well in battle, if you would say, but the Philistines had steel, and the other thing that steel was good for was for farming. You could get a lot more done with steel implements in farming than you could with wooden ones, and so uh, this was a in the Israelites' mind and in the Philistines' mind, this was a great partnership because with the Philistine steel, the crops were better. They could harvest more and do more with steel farming implements. And of course, they made more money. With more money, they bought weapons and more steel farming implements, which made their crops do better. So both sides are making money hand over. It's very affluent time for Israel and the Philistines. So they like this. Okay? This is a good partnership in their minds. And they were so assimilated into the Philistine worldview and lifestyle that they didn't really care if they were being oppressed because they're like, well, it's not so bad. I mean, we're oppressed, but man, we're making a lot of money. We seem to be living how we want to live. Doesn't seem all that bad. They're so comfortable in their affluence, so comfortable in their new assimilated families that they convinced themselves that God would be okay with whatever they were doing because things were so good. How could God? This is, this is like today's argument where we say, God just wants me to be happy, right? God just wants me to be happy. So it doesn't matter how I get there, and as long as I'm happy, God must be pleased. We kind of flip that upside down. So in their eyes, there's nothing really wrong with what they're doing. So by the time that Samson comes on the scene, the sons of Israel are so assimilated with the Philistines and so assimilated under the suppression, they didn't even care if they're delivered. Not at all. So that's why there's no cry out. You may also recall also in our story that Samson's mother could not bear children. Right? And the angel of the Lord then appeared to Manoah's wife. We don't know her name. We just uh, Her name is just Mrs. Manoah, I guess. And specified that Samson, they were going to have a son. They were going to call him Samson. And he was to be raised up from birth under a life of separation called a Nazarite vow. Right? And he was to be a Nazarite from birth. And that meant he was not to drink anything made from the vine. No grape juice, no, no wine. Right? Nothing made from the wine. He was not to touch anything dead, right? Could not touch a dead body or anything dead. And he was not to cut his hair. Now, last time together, in chapter 14, we looked at verses 1 through 3, that Samson, where we saw that Samson's first little beginning to stumble here in his commitment and relationship with the Lord. So let's review that quickly. What went wrong in Samson's first stumble in his commitment to the Lord? So the first thing we saw uh, is... Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So the first thing he, first thing that Samson did was he went to the wrong place. Okay. Now remember, we spent a lot of time last time talking about relationships and young people in relationships and how not to uh, walk according to the spirit but walk according to the flesh. Right. So in this particular case, we see Samson who is doing just that. He's going to walk in the flesh here. And the first thing that he did wrong in choosing a mate is he went to the wrong place to look for a mate. Okay, So Samson, with his Nazarite vow of separation from the world and unto God, should have known that he should not just be wandering around in the enemy's territory. Right? We spent some time on that in, in today's world. 
This would be like a Christian trying to find a Christian wife at the bar. Okay, this, you know, it's kind of put this into, into perspective here for today. It's been pointed out by commentators that when it says that Samson went down to the territory of the Philistines, that he not only went there physically, but he was already walking, he was already heading downhill spiritually, right? Even by the time he even was walking down there, he had no business going into Timnah to look at the daughters of the Philistines because under the law, he was not allowed to marry one anyway let alone being a Nazarite, let alone having the angel of the Lord come and saying, this person is going to be marked out to deliver you or begin the delivery from the Philistines. Yet, there he goes. But now having gone into the enemy territory to the city of Timnah, Samson finds himself tempted, and before you know it, he's ensnared by sin. What happened? Well, he fell in lust at first sight with a young woman from that city, which leads us to the second cause for a stumble. Not only was he looking for love in all the wrong places, if you will, second thing is he gave in to the lust of his eyes. He gave in to physical attraction and made that the number one priority in the relationship, right? That's the first thing. She looks good to me, is uh, the quote from here from Scripture. So there's no question about what attracted Samson to the woman, and it was her looks, it was her beauty. And we talked about that a great link last time about trying to choose a mate just on physical appearance, just on uh, how wrong that is and how shallow that is when we can't see the person underneath. Because there will be a time, and all of us uh, folks uh, who were married, right, understand that the older you get, your body doesn't look the same as it did when you were 20. I hate to tell you that if you're younger folks, right? That things head south and continually head south for a long period of time. And so if you've based your relationship on nothing but physical beauty, if there's nothing, there's no foundation underneath that, you're going to be sadly disappointed, right? Because, uh, and we talked about, like, remember the uh, the first time, I mean, I should get away from this. My, well, I'll talk about it anyway. All right. Remember the first time. I'll probably be in trouble. All right. Honey, I love you. Okay. Right. The, so the first set, Eric's like, "Don't do it! Don't do it!" Okay. Now I'm gonna go ahead and do it. All right. Let's just say that uh, you know the first time that you have your first child, and things look differently, right? The things look different in your wife's body than they did before she had a childbirth, and it's all wonderful. It's beautiful. Uh, those, uh, you know. Anyway, things change. And if you, if you were just basing your love on just superficial appearance, then you might say, wow, something changed here, and you may or may not be happy with it. If that's all your love was based on, that's, a, first of all, a very shallow and superficial love. And then secondly, you know, what about you, right? A little bit later as your hair starts falling out, right, and all the other things that happen with age. I mean, all, we live in a fallen world. I should just get off this topic here. This is not good. Okay, let me move on. I'm going to just end it right there. Anyway, Samson, Lord help me. All right, Samson gave in to the lust of his eyes, right? So finally in verse 3, we see the last reason we discovered for Samson's trouble is he scorned the counsel of others, right? Look at verse uh, verse 2. So he came back, told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then verse 3, the father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people 
that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. He doesn't sound like a very good person here, does he? So Samson goes against all the godly counsel in the world in these verses. He's doing something that was strictly forbidden in Scripture. Turn back uh, and look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7. Okay? And again, I'm just trying to refresh this because as we move forward beginning next week, you're going to, uh, you need to remember this. So we'll start off in Deuteronomy 7 verse 1. God had warned them about this, did he not? When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, right? Then he lists all those nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not, look at verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And when that happens, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God, has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. They were not to intermarry. And yet, that's exactly what they're doing. And the Lord had prophesied that that's exactly what was going to happen. You're going to intermarry with people outside of, your, of God's covenant people, and when that happens, they're going to pull you away from the faith. So, uh, and we, again, we spent a lot of time in that last time about being unequally yoked in today's world, in today's relationship. But in our text here, back in Judges, Samson's parents are shattered. Now think about it, right? This is supposed to be, I mean, this is a special child that, the, that God himself, the angel of the Lord, has come and told them, this child has a special mission. And they would have had enough concerns had their son been a normal Israelite, but Samson had been designated a Nazarite even before he was conceived, even before he's born. And I'm sure they remember the Lord's prophecy that Samson is going to begin the delivery of the Israelites from the Philistines. Well, how in the world does that happen if you're marrying one of them? Imagine coming home to find out that instead of taking the Philistines on in battle, he wants to marry one. And so Manoah and his wife expressed their concerns. And surely there was some young woman from among their tribe, or at least from the Israelite tribe, that they might find as an acceptable wife. Why should they seek a wife from the uncircumcised Philistine? And remember, that's not a racial term, that's a covenant term, right? God wanted his people to stay within their covenant people, so that they would maintain their promises, their part of the covenant with God, okay? And so that his promises could be fulfilled through his covenant people, which would not happen if they're drawn away and they quit worshiping him. 
All right, verse 4 then. That brings us to the somewhat troubling verse in verse 4. However, it says here, he says, get her for me at the end of verse 3. She looks good to me. Verse 4, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now at that time, the Philistines were ruling over Israel. So what does God do? When his people are no longer being obedient to him because they, have, they are so deeply assimilated into the world, so deeply assimilated into the culture that they have lost their first love. They've lost their passion. They are no longer serving the Lord at all. The key to understanding this entire section lies in this one verse here. Now, notice that. He was seeking. Do you see that in verse 4? He was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Some people believe that means Samson was the one who was seeking an occasion to do that. They believe Samson was only using this demand to marry a Philistine girl as an excuse to do what God had appointed him to do. In other words, God was okay, if you will, with what Samson was doing because it was accomplishing what God had intended for Samson to do anyway. That's how some people interpret that. But of course, that would also mean that God excused Samson's violation of what he explicitly said not to do in Deuteronomy 7, which means that he would be basically winking at Samson's sin because it was going to accomplish. In other words, the end justifies the means. So God is okay with Samson sinning because it's going to, it's going to accomplish what God wants. That's how pe some people interpret this verse. I don't agree with that interpretation. So, I believe that he in this verse is most assuredly speaking about God. It is God who is going to orchestrate this conflict. For a number of reasons, I believe that this is God. First, grammatically, it makes the most sense. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but that the God is the most natural antecedent to the word he. Secondly, Samson clearly looks to be driven by the lust of his own eyes, and not some directive from God. When he says, get her for me, she looks good to me, that doesn't sound like he's doing anything for God. It sounds like he's only feeding his own lusts. And then look at verse 7. Take a sneak peek there. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. That sure sounds like Samson is the one driving this, does it? Not God. The real reason for Samson's action is that he, God, is looking for an opportunity to foster a conflict between Israel and the Philistines. Now that would have been wonderful information for Samson's parents to know, wouldn't it? But God in his sovereignty chose not to reveal that to them. That does not mean that they were wrong to object to Samson's decision. They were right to do that. Nor does it mean that Samson's actions were right, but rather that God chose to use the very weaknesses of Samson his lust of the eyes, his sexual appetite, his vindictiveness, his temper, which we're going to all see unfold here and a little bit later in this chapter, to bring about what God had desired, which is to create a conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. Nothing can prevent God from accomplishing his sovereign will, not even the foolishness of his own people. And as this story unfolds, we'll see just about everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, not just Samson. But we'll also see God use their own ungodliness to ensure his people are not totally assimilated with the ungodly Philistines. 
why would God do this? Why would God work through their sinfulness to accomplish his will? Because God remains unconditionally committed to the promises that he had made. God cannot go back on those promises regardless regardless of the fact that we're trying to work against him or we're not living for him. God will still accomplish his promises. God had promised to love them and to fulfill all of his covenant promises to them. And to accomplish that, he had to break that stranglehold of the assimilation between the Israelites and the Philistines. He had to break that up. And he had to break that stranglehold to fulfill his covenant promises, not only despite their sin, but through it, believe it or not. He had to work over their sins or through their sins. God will use their own sinfulness to accomplish his sovereign will and fulfill his promises. Nowhere is that more evident than at the cross. Look at Acts chapter 2 for just a second. Acts chapter 2. You know, Peter's giving this beautiful sermon here at Pentecost, and he's explaining what's going on, remember, and it's kind of rolling along, and he's giving him some history, and then at the very end, he says these very piercing words. Acts chapter 2, verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of whom? Of God. This man you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, right? So what is he saying here? Listen, God even used the sinfulness of wicked men to accomplish his purpose at the cross. God is sovereign even over our sin. Even our sinfulness, even our rebellion, even our disobedience will not stop God from fulfilling his promises to us. God used the sinful, wicked choices of men to put Jesus in death, which in turn freed all men who put their faith in Christ from the bondage of sin and its consequences, death. Think about that. God used wickedness of men to free men from the bondage of the wickedness of sin. But that's exactly what happened. God is sovereign. He's so sovereign that even our own sin cannot thwart his sovereign purposes. Beloved, if we don't provide a life that can be used by God to accomplish his will, he may simply choose to accomplish his will through the hardships that come from a person who's not submitted to his will. That's what we're going to see in Judges, aren't we? God is going to accomplish his will through the weaknesses and sinfulness of Samson, and Samson is going to continue to pay these prices, right? And others will pay the price for his sinfulness and wickedness and deceitfulness and pridefulness, and yet God will use that to still accomplish his will. The question is not really whether God will accomplish his sovereign will, but rather which instrument is he going to use? 
will you be an instrument that's submitted to his will or will it be through the consequences of life that is uh, uh, the person who's not submitted to his will which one is it going to be either way he's sovereign over all things including our own sinfulness so back to our text here tonight in, in uh, Judges 14 we see God in his mercy using his the weaknesses of his own people to make sure there's no peace between them and the world do you see that he wants to create a conflict between his people and the world because they're so assimilated in that if they stay on that course there is no way God will be able to fulfill his promises to his people because they're not worshiping him, they're not serving him, they're not obedient to him. That would all lead to their demise. And all of God's covenant promises to them regarding their inheritance would be lost. All of the things that they gain from being God's people would be lost if God doesn't intervene. So God creates a barrier between his people and the world so that his people will not suffer the consequences of being assimilated into the world. And that barrier comes through the weakness of his, of his own people. And my, my, my friends, God does the same in the church today. There's a reason why the world despises the church and that reason is that we too, if we were not careful, could be so easily caught up in the idols of this world. Could we not? Could we not so easily be assimilated in? It it creeps into our churches so easily. We would be so caught up worshiping their same idols that before you know it, we would be so assimilated in the world that there would be no distinction between us and the world. Wouldn't we be just like what's happening here in Judges? God created this organism called the church so that we would be the people who would bring the truth of his gospel to the world. We're to be lights in the midst of this darkness. But how can we be lights in the midst of this darkness if there's no distinction between us and the world? If you can't tell the difference between a Christian a believer and an unbeliever. If you walk into the church and it feels like you're walking into a YMCA. I mean, what's the difference? How can we make a difference in this world if there's no distinction between us? Sometimes we strive so hard in the church age to make everybody like us, but, you know, I wonder if that's really the right course. I'm not saying people should, we should work hard to make people hate us, because I think that that happens naturally anyway for the message that we preach. There's a difference from striving to make contact with people so that you could share the gospel. And there's a, another, there's a, a broader difference, a more distinct difference, in trying to be just like the world. James 4.4 tells us that friendship with the world is what? Hatred, enmity towards God. He warns us about that. Don't get so comfortable with the world that there's no distinction between you and the world anymore. We need to love the world enough to share the gospel with them, and then we need to live lives that glorify God, not the world. But we cannot become as the world, or we too will become like the Israelites. We'll be so far along in the assimilation that we won't have any desire to cry out to God for deliverance because we don't like it. We'll say, this is comfortable. We're, we're, we're affluent. Things are going good. I'm happy. God must be happy. 
I can't begin to tell you. I don't have enough time to tell you what's wrong with that theology. Thank God that he is sovereign over everything, including our sin. And that despite our continual rejection, our continual stubbornness, our continual disobedience, he still fulfills his promises to us. And of his great mercies, I'm most thankful that our sin did not thwart his great plan of salvation for us. But instead, according to his sovereign will, he used the weaknesses of men to accomplish the redemption of all men who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. Amen? Amen. Thank God he's sovereign over our sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder that all things fall under your sovereignty. And I thank you, Lord, that despite our continual weakness and rejection and stubbornness and disobedience, that you still fulfill the promises that you made to your children. And I pray, Father, that rather than being an obstinate, disobedient, rebellious child working against your sovereign will, that we would be instruments in your hands for your righteousness instead. And that we would understand that being your child, being a child of God, came with a great price to you. And that was not a simple price. It cost you the death of your own son. Help us, Father, to grasp that truth and to work, Lord, in accordance with your will, not against your will, and not be so assimilated into the world that we can't see the difference. Be so assimilated in that we don't even cry out to you for deliverance. Father, thank you again for the truth of this word tonight. I ask that you would finish it in our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.